Great. Do keep your Bibles open in Exodus 25. So, does it at times uh, seem to you as though God is absent? Uh, as though in your wrestle with sin in this fallen world, it seems as though he's nowhere to be found. As though he is merely out there, somewhere, disconnected from our present experience here in this world. This, of course, is not a unique issue. Uh, Many believers have felt this way at one point or another in their walk with God. And this includes God's people in the wilderness. Those whom God has promised, he has given a promised land, a promised land, yet they were out there, seemingly lost, and it must have seemed as though God was distant. Of course, he at times spoke through Moses, but how could we know that he is here with us as we amble and roam around the wilderness? Yes, God might have delivered us from the, land of the, from the hand of the Egyptians, that's great, but how can we know that he is always with us? How can we meet with him? Well, we've seen God sovereignly rule and relate with Israel through the covenant, uh, which was the terms of his relationship, his relation and rule with his people. But here in our passage, Exodus chapter 25 to 31, we see God, through the construction of the tabernacle, reveal himself as one who resides and dwells with his people. Meaning God does not abandon them to wander and roam through the wilderness aimlessly. Instead, he moves into the neighborhood, so to speak, through the building of the portable tent that is the tabernacle. Now, as we look at this passage this evening, the author narrates for us God's instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. And we find here three focal points that we'll consider tonight that this account points us to. And firstly, an indication of God's perfect holiness. Secondly, God's communion with a sinful people. And thirdly, the God who tabernacles with us in his son. And before we consider these though, it's important to keep in mind that the tabernacle was to be God's earthly place of dwelling amidst the people of Israel. That is a place where God's presence is particularly known. As they made their way through the desert, God's people were always to see, pitched right at the center of their camp, a tangible symbol for God's earthly home. Now take a look at verse 8 of chapter 25 with me. God says, Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell with them. This is to be the, the purpose of the tabernacle. God here promises his people that he would be with them. That wherever they found themselves in the wilderness, God would be there that he would tabernacle with them as a God who resides with his people. Last week, uh, last week we saw God establish his covenant with Israel. Now he calls them to make contributions for the construction of the tabernacle. Look at verse 2 of chapter 25. God says, Tell the Israelites to bring with me an offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. 
This offering was to be a contribution to fund the building of God's dwelling place. The giving in response to God's goodness would provide the materials needed for its construction. Which leads us to our first point. In the tabernacle, we see God's perfect holiness. Whenever I pay a visit home to Northampton, I would often venture out on a run in the mornings, sometimes injuring myself. Uh, Whenever I do, I would pass through this uncompleted building that seemed to take a suspiciously long time to build. But although I may know nothing else about that building, what I do know is that it's built according to the clearly defined plans of an architect. The builders, regardless of their own personal preferences for what the building should look like, must lay every brick in accordance with the plan of the architect. And we find precisely the same here with the tabernacle, don't we? God is the architect, and he has a precise, detailed plan for the construction of this portable tent. And he insists it must be followed exactly like the pattern I will show Chapter 25, verse 9. And Moses then had to give instructions to follow that plan with every detail. So what do these instructions involve? Well, firstly, God instructs Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant made from acacia wood and overlaid stunningly with pure gold. We see this in verse 11. This comes first because it is to be at the very center of God's dwelling place, located in the central tent called the Holy of Holies. They're then to work their way from the inside out by building a table, again overlaid with pure gold to hold the bread of the presence, that is the the bread that is placed before the presence of God, which is to be brought before God in the most holy place, an inner section of the ark, in verse 30. The construction also includes a lampstand, again, of pure gold, verse 31, to light the holy place within the tabernacle. And the tabernacle itself is covered with a series of curtains and frames, chapter 26, and is to include the altar of burnt offerings, chapter 27 and an altar for burning incense in chapter 30. But why such a detailed design? God could have simply asked them to build the tabernacle with whatever they felt like. Why all these types of incense and ornaments, the different types of metals and furnishings? They were a reminder that the God of the tabernacle is perfectly holy. We see that each detail was designed by God to point to God to teach this, the, the, his covenant people this very point. Take a look with me at chapter 26, verse 33. The curtain of the tabernacle is to separate the holy place from the most holy place. And in chapter 28, verse 43, even Aaron and his sons who are consecrated by God as priests to minister in the tabernacle on behalf of the people must put on their priestly garments when they approach the holy place or they die. 
and they must have engraved on a seal fastened to their turban, holy to the Lord. Verse 36. And in chapter 30, verse 36, the incense in the tabernacle is considered most holy. So do you notice then how the tabernacle was a holy place not because of the materials in and of themselves, but because dwelling in it was a perfectly holy God. And this was to be a continual daily reminder for God's people. A few months ago, I visited London with a couple of friends, uh, partly to uh, visit, the, visit Buckingham Palace. And we came to see the palace and watch the changing of the guard, which was my first time. One of the things that really struck me, though, was the crowd's desperation to see these guards. But although the gate was wide open, no one dared to approach the entrance. Instead, they pressed hard against the gates. In fact, I could barely move with the weight of strangers pressing against me with camera phones as I leaned against the fences. You see, they knew that royalty dwelt amongst them, but they would not approach the entrance. They knew that this building was different. You know, this was not your typical neighbor's home from down the road you could, you know, casually pop into for a cup of tea and a chat. This was the dwelling place of the Queen of England, and is only to be approached by those who have been consecrated, so to speak, to do so. The footmen and the guards, for instance. In an infinitely greater way, God's people were to be continually reminded of the majesty and the holiness of the God who resides in their midst whenever they took a glance at that magnificent tent. As incredible as it was to have God dwelling among them, they were always to be reminded of how holy he is and how unholy they were. They were to look at the tabernacle pitched in the very center of their camp and know that it was designed by God that they would be struck in awe by his holiness. But despite that, we see God's amazing grace in full display here in our passage. That he not only provides the terms for their dwelling with him, but he himself provides the means for them to come to his presence. The tabernacle is a beautiful display of God's grace. Even though he is holy and pure, incredibly, yet he sought to condescend to their level to draw them close, to dwell with them as their God, so that wherever they found themselves in the wilderness, they needed only to look in the center, and their God was in their midst. He is to dwell in a tent so that where his people goes, he goes as the God who resides with his people. Which leads us to our second point. In the tabernacle, we see God's desire to commune with a sinful people. You know, for God to be so holy and pure, and God's people being so unholy, of people who were always breaking the covenant, failing to obey God in the way he demanded, this reveals a problem for us to think about. We know that sin got in the way of communion between God and his people. The God who is spotlessly pure 
cannot commune with the people who are continuously, continuously stained by their sin. It had to be dealt with in order for a holy God to dwell with them. Atonement was necessary. And this, of course, explains the rituals, the sacrifices, the rigorous processes that the priests had to go through before they themselves entered into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was. Because God is so holy, he cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He cannot, being a perfectly holy and just God, let sin go. There had to be a payment for the breaking of his law. Justice had to be served. And we all recognize this to some extent, don't we? And we all cry out for justice when we see wrongdoing. And even uh, parents here, uh, as, even children, as, as I'm sure the parents in this room will know very well, will look you in the eyes and tell you, you probably know what's coming next. That's not fair. Think of a judge who sits on his bench each day and as guilty criminals approach him one after the other, he says, never mind, we'll ignore your crimes. Just forget it all that ever happened. All of us will cry out corruption. We would demand that he be removed from office immediately. Well, the God of the tabernacle is not a corrupt judge. In fact, He's seen here as the perfectly just God who, to dwell and relate with his people so closely, deals with the problem of their sin. So he lays out a system of sacrifices and rites of purification through which the the high priest could atone not only for their own sins, but for the sins of the people, so that he could dwell among them. So that even the high priest who himself was tainted with sin may approach God on behalf of the people. So God, for instance, in chapter 25, verse 17, provides the the instructions for the making of a mercy seat, a place where mercy is found, where the penalty for the breaking of God's law is covered. And in chapter 29, as the priests are set apart for priesthood, daily sacrifices were to be the focus of their roles. And we see in verse uh, 36, God says to Moses, sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering to make atonement. Purify the altar by making atonement for it and anoint it to consecrate it. And in verse 38, God says, this is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. God renews his fellowship with his people through sacrifice for atonement to cover the sins of the people and bring them back to himself. A sacrifice that makes them at one with him. He showed himself to be the good and just God, not by sweeping their disobedience under the rug and ignoring them, because that would be unjust, but by making atonement, covering their sins, through the blood of a lamb provided each day. So that we could, so that he could, verse 45, dwell among the Israelites and be their God. In other words, so that the fellowship that has been fractured by sin could be renewed. 
So this leads us to our final point. We see the God who tabernacles with us in his son, Jesus, the lamb who takes away our sins. Well, we still wrestle with sin in this world, don't we? And we so often fall prey to it. We still, like the Israelites, are covenant breakers who are so prone to disobey the God we love. We still turn from and rebel against the perfectly holy and just God. But the good news is that we find in Christ the ultimate fulfillment of the longing for God's continual presence and the atoning sacrifice provided in the tabernacle. Christ is God's tabernacle. And we see this beautifully fulfilled in his incarnation, that is, God dwelling with us in his Son. He may have given the Israelites the tabernacle so that he could live with them symbolically, but he gives us his Son, Jesus Christ, in flesh to dwell with us, to tabernacle with us. And John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. See, God in his son, Jesus, pitched his tent among us, so to speak, tangibly, bodily. And in verse 19, this word, Jesus, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not incredible news. If we read the instructions of the building of the tabernacle outside of its fulfillment in Christ, we miss the point completely. God dwells with us in Christ. Christ is the high priest and the perfect sacrifice that brings us back to God. This entire account points us forward to Jesus and his finished work for those who believe in him. So to go back to my question at the beginning, God is not absent, friends. He's not disconnected. He's not out there detached from our experience in this world. No, he dwells among us. He has made his dwelling place with us, with you. God came to live with us through his son, Jesus Christ. And the purpose that this tent served out there in the wilderness is served fully and completely for us in the person of Christ. If you're not a Christian here, do you see what that means? It means that you can come to know God, to have a relationship with him, to know God personally. If you trust and believe in his son, Jesus Christ, God promises his continual presence with you. In him, you'll find a God who goes through life with you, a God who knows you, who loves you, who communes with you. And just as remarkably, Jesus also fulfills to, com to completion what the animal uh, offerings could not. He provides a perfect sacrifice. The author of the <clears throat> book of Hebrews helpfully sheds light on this for us, especially in chapter 9, verse 12 says, Christ did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And in chapter 
5, Christ, the great high priest, was offered as the once-for-all sacrifice that brought eternal salvation. You see, Christ offers himself, his life, as the sacrifice. Christ is the perfect lamb, the, the perfect lamb offering who takes away our sins. On him, God places our guilt and the punishment we deserve. Because of this, we have eternal redemption. We are reconciled with God through the death of his son on the cross. And through that perfect sacrifice, Jesus entered the most holy place before God in heaven on our behalf. And think of the incredible implications of that. If you're a Christian here tonight, all your sins are covered to completion by the Lamb's blood. All your guilt, the punishment for our disobedience. In Christ, there is full assurance, eternal redemption, a lasting sacrifice that unites us with God eternally. And because of this, we can say with Paul, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the tabernacle was a glimpse, a picture that looks forward to the ministry of Christ, our great high priest. Not only does God send his son to dwell with us, but if you've come to faith in Christ, you're inhabited by God, the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you're a believer in Christ, God lives in you. He dwells in you. You're the dwelling place of God. God not only tabernacles with you, he tabernacles in you. We don't have to, you know, travel thousands of miles on a pilgrimage to find God out there somewhere. Where you are, Christian, God is. And where we gather as a church, there God dwells. And as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2.9, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And uh, that has profound implications for our walk with Jesus, doesn't it? If the Israelites looked at the tabernacle and saw a tent that was different, a holy temple set apart for God, so also we, as those who are temples of God, the Holy Spirit, should live as a holy people, a people set apart for God. So in our conduct, in our speech, in our love for others, let us strive to live as those amongst whom and in whom God tabernacles. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you for this great news of Christ dwelling among us and dying for us uh, to rescue us, to bring us back in relationship with God. And so we ask, Lord, that uh, we would indeed live as this holy people. We ask that you would continue to draw us to yourself. We thank you so much for this news, and we ask that it will be a continual reminder for us day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.